This podcast is brought to you by the Toronto School of Management's NCA exam prep program. The TSM NCA prep program offers internationally trained lawyers courses taught by practicing lawyers in Canada, expertly designed study guides, exclusive networking opportunities with top Canadian law firms, and employability sessions, arming you with all the tools you need in order to hit the ground running in your pursuit to practicing law in Canada. To find out more about the program, you can email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. Welcome to A Shot of Life, a podcast aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. This is episode 24. Our 24th guest is Lena Cope. Lena is CEO and co-founder of Access Law and over the past seven years has been leading the company through significant periods of growth while overseeing the company being recognized on Canadian businesses startup 50, Growth 500, and the Globe and Mail's Canada's fastest growing companies awards lists multiple times. Lena is passionate about expanding the avenues through which Canadians can access legal services. She is heavily focused on the company's operations and technology areas, believing that streamlined processes coupled with new forward-thinking technologies will continue to fuel the growth of the company and lead to much-needed legal service offerings for Canadians. Lena has been recognized as one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers in Canadian Lawyer Magazine, and Profit Guides Canada's Top Female Entrepreneurs. She has an MBA from the Rotman School of Management, a law degree from the University of Toronto, and a BA from the University of Western Ontario. Hi, Lena. Hi, Anton. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, we uh, we kind of got introduced to each other, as many people do nowadays, through LinkedIn, um, getting sort of some updates on the kind of work that you're doing with your firm and uh, doing a little bit of research about you before I reached out. So I'm, I'm really happy that you agreed to be on. Well, I, uh, I, I actually, I think that your podcast is a really interesting initiative and uh, I'm happy to, happy to be speaking with you. Excellent. So, um, you know, normally what I do is I'm interviewing internationally trained lawyers um, mm-hmm. and, and we're talking about their journeys, we're talking about their experiences, ups and downs, and what sort of led them to Canada and what, is, you know, what fuels the inspiration behind looking to practice law in Canada. Now, um, Lena, you're a bit of a different guest, and so I think it would be beneficial for everybody if you could just um, get into a little bit about where you went to law school, um, what inspired that decision to do that, and what mm-hmm. have you, because I know you have kind of a really interesting journey to where you are now, what else have you done <laughs> other than just yeah. law? <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, I'll try to keep it um, all professionally related. But um, so starting at law school, I went to law school at U of T, um, so University of Toronto. I did a joint program, the Law and MBA program, the JD MBA, mm-hmm. which, um, which is very interesting on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, 
after that. So what inspired me to go to law school? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that there, there's not always just one right path for someone. I think this was, you know, one of many paths that could have been the right decision for me. I think what initially drew me to the idea of going to law school was the fact that um, it didn't pigeonhole me. Um, the path from law school is very broad. You can do a lot of different things after you get a degree mm. um, or even get licensed. Um, and I think I probably at that point in my life just wasn't necessarily ready to make a full commitment to any one profession or any one line of work. So I thought, great law school, business school, this will open a lot of doors. Mm. And, you know, I, I can put off that scary decision for a few years longer of what do I actually want to do <laughs> for the rest of my life, which <laughs> now, yeah. now, you know, seems like a larger question. You, you don't, yeah. you don't have to, you don't have to make just one decision. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're never yet. Yeah, like I, there is no one size fits all really for, for a, a career in law or a career affiliated with the law, like you were saying, if you study law, it doesn't necessarily pigeonhole you into being a lawyer forever and ever. Amen. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm interested in what the benefit was of the joint aspect of it with an M combining a law degree with a business degree. How did that help? Do you think um, change your perspective or help you with your perspective on what you wanted to do after that degree? Um. You know, it's interesting because the two schools in my, you know, in my experience are about as different as you can get They're They're night and day. Hmm. Um, I found, you know, my time at the law school was, you know, valuable in one sense. Business school was valuable in that the other sense. Um, law school, I think I found that certainly in the courses I was taking, we were dealing with a lot of theory and foundational things and just, you know, understanding the law and understanding the way things were being done and the way they are being done now and why they're being done that way. But I, I also found that for, for me, it was a little limited in terms of the practical use. I could put a lot of what I, I learned to. Um, and, you know, business school, it was sort of a little bit more interesting for me. It was very practically driven. Hmm. It was really interesting. You know, a class, you get people from all around the world, which is nice because you get different perspectives, people who have worked in, you know, one industry or another in one country or another. And for, for me, anyhow, that was something that really appealed to me. Right. Uh, I enjoy getting those other perspectives. And I think it really just drove home the fact that you know, school and life in general is not, doesn't just have to be this linear path where, you know, you, you start at point A and you, you're aiming to go to point B and then you get there and, and you're done. And, you know, mm -hmm. congratulations, you've, you've made it. It's more like, um, you know, it's, it's just like a river. You can, you can start on a path and, you know, there are lots of forks in the roads. And if you have, um, different experiences and various perspectives you've been exposed to. There are a lot of interesting opportunities that can can arise. Exactly. No, I, th I think that's true. And I think it's really interesting for me as I'm doing these podcast episodes to learn from the internationally trained lawyer side of things. And that's sort of an underlying theme of most of the episodes I do with them is that they're their experience and their, you know, the nuanced perspective given how they came to Canada and, and the education mm -hmm. they've received has helped shape them and, and create maybe um, little, you know, experts in certain fields that otherwise mm -hmm. you wouldn't have exposure to if you just went through a traditional domestic experience. And it's, it's really interesting that that can be experienced also within Canada when you're studying law in Canada. And, you know, like the, the idea that your, your, 
trajectory or the end point is never linear, really, no matter where you mm-hmm. go to law school. And, you know, that's, that's really interesting for me to learn about. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, it, it's, 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 uh, I think that'll be refreshing for everybody to hear is that they're not alone just because you have a winding road to where you're going to be. I think everybody kind of does. And it's all about navigating that and learning from experiences. And so your, your business degree and your law degree, you, you've completed that. Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. I did complete them. Yeah. And, and then you choose to do what with that? Like you have this different perspective and you mentioned that you really enjoyed business school. And so did you follow a traditional sort of on-campus interview process and get into a larger firm here in Canada to start? Or what was your next step after that? Um, so again, yeah, mine was a little bit winding. So, um, the joint program is a four-year program. Mm -hmm. And before my fourth year, um, I went to go work at a law firm in Tokyo. So it was between my third and fourth year for one year. So this particular firm has a relationship or it did, I don't know if it still does with the university of Toronto, Mm. uh, through the law school. And every year they hire two, two U of T law students to go and work at their firm. And I lived in Tokyo before for, you know, a short time, you know, six months or seven months or something like that. And I thought, oh, great. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it'd be great to go back there and work at a firm. I'm not in a huge rush to graduate. And, uh, you know, the salary made it, uh, made it very sort of uh, seductive for me. And I thought, yeah. oh, this will be great. Let, let's head over there. So I did that for, um, for a year. I came back to finish my fourth year. And while I was in my fourth year, I'd always been really interested in, um, you know, various aspects of real estate development. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was taught at the business school. But of course, you can only learn so much in school. So I reached out to uh, one of the companies that was aligned with the business school um, and just said, you know, um, can you hire me? Yeah, <laughs> I, ha- I have zero experience. Um, and by the way, I'll work for free right. um, because I just want to learn. So uh, fortunately, you know, I-, I managed to sort of, you know, convince them that um, it wasn't a terrible idea right. and they actually agreed to pay me. So that was nice uh, as well. But I ended up working there during my fourth year while I was finishing up. I think, you know, by your fourth year, you, you, for me, anyhow, I was really ready to just sort of get some more practical experience. So mm-hmm. finished up my classes, my fourth year, I was working there. And then I decided to article there as well. Um, and finished articling, got called to the bar and thought, okay, great. Check that off the list. Um, and then I ended up opening up, um, a real estate investment company for several years, which, um, was a lot of fun. It was right. just all new things and kind of putting together everything I'd learned, the legal aspects, um, the business aspects. It was nice. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And if I, if I could take one step back, um, what was it like living in Tokyo for a year? Oh, it was great. Um, yeah, so I, I lived there twice, and I, I think both times they were a little bit different experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great. I mean, the food's excellent. It's a very yeah. safe place to live. Uh, lots of nightlife, if you like that type of thing. Lots of outdoors activities, if, if that's your thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was great. It was great. I, yeah, because I, I went there. It was. It's kind of, I guess, serendipitous that I didn't become a citizen, really, because we. I went there with my fiance and her family 
in February of 2020, just before, oh, just before wow. the, the, the like the worldwide lockdown started to hit. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we stayed in Shinjuku and it was, it was really oh, cool. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a busy area. <laughs> yeah, it was intense. And the, you know, at, at the, the stereotypical um, small hotel rooms we had, it was for skiing, right? So we went to, yeah. uh, for skiing and then we had the ski bags in this small hotel room. It was, it was all a really cool experience. So I just, I always think fondly of it. Um, so I'm always interested when somebody says they lived there or they, they went there, I'm always curious. Um, so yeah, you've, you mean you started a real estate um, investment firm. Um, where are you at now, uh, Lena? Like, I, I mean, have you managed to employ all of the stuff that you've learned now, or are you embarking on something new that you've, that you've recently started or that you have started? You know what? I think, you know, a lot of, um, it was so to answer your question Hmm. right now, I am, I have a law firm called access law, which I can sort of get into if you Mm -hmm. want. I think we'll speak a little bit more about that, but it's almost eight years old now. And I think a lot of, you know, what I'd done prior to that, certainly they were stepping stones to getting here. Mm -hmm. Um, but saying that, you know, 90% of what we do had to be learned, you know, they don't teach you how to hire, they don't teach you how to fire, Mm -hmm. they don't teach you how to try to motivate people and, you know, you know, help them be happy and thrive at work, they don't teach you um, all sorts of stuff. And that's, you know, certainly not a criticism. That's just a lot of things just need to be learned by doing. Yeah. Um, so I would say I do probably 90% of what I do in a day are just things that you just have to learn by doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trial and error sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you kind of, I get the sense, you know, speaking to other people who have their own firm or, you know, they, you never stop learning and you never really become um, an expert at, per se. You just kind of evolve with the mm-hmm. time. You become maybe more comfortable with things like, you know, the HR side of things, which um, you don't really factor in. Like when I think, oh, I'd love to start my own firm, very few people, I think, think of the HR side of things, um, you know, the hiring, <laughs> firing, all of that, the company ethos things that, you know, that you were talking about. So um, how do you think that's gone so far? Do you think um, you're, you're getting there or? You know what? I, I love it. I, I love yeah. what I do. Um, and uh, I have for a long time, but you know, if I were to say I've made no mistakes along the way, that would be uh, grossly inaccurate. Um, I think the key is to, you know, try as hard as you can be as thoughtful about your decisions as you can be. And also try to be as honest as you can be about the mistakes that you make and, Mm -hmm. you know, try not to repeat them. And, you know, sometimes you do try not to repeat them again and just keep working at it. And, you know, if you, if you stop working at it, if you stop changing, if you stop growing and as, as companies do, you're not going to last very long or, you know, maybe you will, but not in the type of state that you'd like to. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a constant keep growing, keep moving, keep evolving, especially these days. I mean, things change so quickly. You have to make a concerted effort to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you get left behind very quickly. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it's definitely not a static thing. It's very much a living and breathing day to day, day to day process. So, yeah. I mean, part of what really intrigued me, Lena, in wanting to interview you was a lot about access law and the kind of things that you're doing. And like you had mentioned, you're you have to move with the times. And so now um, 2020 and, and the times are a lot, there's a lot of influx of technology. Um, and, you know, my, my uncle went to law school like way back uh, at U of T as well. And he, 
he got into the pensions department at Imperial Oil, and that's where he stayed forever and ever. Amen. Um, and, you know, at some point you kind of burn out a little bit. And, but what he did become was what I would envision as the prototypical sort of 20th century lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we're not sort of in those times anymore. Um, and I think technology has made leaps and bounds even within the last 10 years. Sort of, I, I can only imagine, Lena, when you started Access Law eight years ago to where technology is now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can only imagine the things that you've had to adopt in your practice to try to stay ahead or to try to at least um, be compliant with what clients are looking for and what they expect. So obviously you can't stop technology. I wonder just, just sort of taking a step back, if you could maybe assess um, how you think it's affected the practice of law. Oh, that's a big question, Anton. Yeah. Where, do, <laughs> yeah, I know. where do I start with that? Um, I think there have been a lot of a lot of changes and and just so many of them have actually just come to fruition in the past year as well. Mm. But more of a general sense, I think we're seeing a lot more openness and a lot more acceptance for new ways of doing things. And look, new ways of doing things are not always better and they're not always good and they're not always perfect, but I think a lot of times they can be. So we always try to start with what are the pain points? What are the what are the issues that we're seeing? What are the reasons that you know clients can't afford these services or clients are frustrated because of ABC, that type of thing? Mm-hmm. And we try to start from there and say, okay, you know, can we solve this through technology? Can we solve this through better customer service? Can we solve this through better training? Mm-hmm. That's the approach we've always taken. Um, in terms of what is technology sort of done to the law, I, I think just changing our perspective, certainly, and I'm going to speak from a Canadian perspective because that, that's my perspective. Yep. Um, I think other jurisdictions are working at different speeds, some faster, some slower, mm-hmm. but just an openness to different ways of doing things. And again, you know, an honest look at things and saying, okay, is this a better way of doing it? And, and if so, what are the reasons? I'm not just going to say no because um, it scares me or, you know, this is a protectionist perspective where I don't want non-lawyers coming into the field or whatnot. Mm -hmm. There's, it's very important that we look at, you know, why we're holding certain opinions and what we're trying to, um, what are we trying to actually establish? What are, what are we trying to do at the end of the day? So I think just on, you know, a, a very small scale during the last six, seven, eight months, we've been able to you know, do a lot of things virtually that we couldn't do before. Right. I mean, we were doing virtual will appointments two years ago and, you know, we had to go out and we got le- legal opinions on it. And I talked to uh, everyone under the sun to make sure that we were on the right side of the law, but you know, you'd still talk to a lot of people and they'd say, well, you know, I'd like to meet in person with a lawyer. I don't understand why you should do that. How do you, how do you maintain the security of the situation now? I mean, not everybody's on board, but you, there's a lot, greater acceptance for having virtual meetings and understanding the fact that you might not always be able to physically jump in your car and run out and see a lawyer for various reasons, whether it's, you know, a safety reason or whether it's just a physical geography reason Mm -hmm. or whether it's a cost reason. So just, I'd say changing attitudes has been a really large part of what's changed in the past even eight months. Yeah. Well, I'd say definitely people are now forced to rethink their their day-to-day business transactions just given mm-hmm. the, the lockdown and the inability of people to meet face-to-face and so mm-hmm. in, in lieu of that there are alternative options that are becoming more mainstream i agree um now 
I, I wonder, I'm curious about technology. I am by no means an expert. I, I did not go to school for it, but I find the innovation side really interesting. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you do as well, you know, as a, as a co-founder of a firm and, you know, like you're always looking to see how you can, how you can benefit from the technology that exists. I, I was curious if you had any knowledge um, of blockchain and, and that, my knowledge is very cursory, um, but what I understand is that it, it's, you know, the people who really touted it um, and it's becoming more and more mainstream now is that it's going to sort of revolutionize the way we think of contracts in some ways, like smart contracts, things like that. Are you aware of any, like that kind of, that sort of revolution, quote unquote, that's happening or? De- definitely. And I think now just, <laughs> just sort of uh, to be frank, I'm not, I'm not a, a software engineer, so I'll give yeah. it, I'll give you the legal perspective. I'll give you sure. what I know because it applies to my business and, yeah. and um, whatnot. I definitely try to, educate myself but I'm again by no means an expert either um Mm -hmm. so just I guess by way of background because not everyone who's listening um maybe does read this for fun on Friday afternoon Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's okay if you do I sometimes do as well Mm -hmm. um but yeah starting with smart contracts I mean just in its sort of simplest form Um, You know, it's an agreement between two people, which is really written into computer code. So instead of the way that we would write it, you know, um, by typing it out or whatever, it's actually written into computer code. And then it runs on the blockchain Mm -hmm. um, stored in a public database. And the argument is that it can't be changed. Um, There's a whole bunch of pros that are sort of touted because it's uh, running on the blockchain. Um, that it's, you know, it's a decentralized system, which a lot of people are really, um, you know, supportive of the transparency, uh, the security, um, and it can also be efficient and, and fast. Now, the flip side of that, as with blockchain that, you know, a lot of people say, is they say, look, this hasn't been widely adopted yet, so it can still be super expensive. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be expensive because if everybody adopted it and there was real scalability, it would probably become extremely efficient and extremely affordable. But because we're not there yet, mm-hmm. similar to, you know, you know, the first flat screen TVs that came out were crazy expensive and now they're, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're cheap. It just, it takes time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's it. It's not, it's not scalable yet. It's, it's very sort of, uh, there's a lot of high energy dependence still, mm-hmm. but I think that what's nice about it is that there are a lot of opportunities for us to use these types of things to enhance the security of what we're doing and also the speed with which we do it mm-hmm. and also sort of globally be able to make contracts and, and various types of agreements and even communications. But the key is we're not there yet. We have to find a way to, you know, first of all, educate people about it, yeah, perfect it, make sure it's, you know, there's a lot of fear out there that it's prone to hacking. I don't know that it's prone to hacking and I'm probably not um, the person to speak on that. Mm. But because there's that fear there, you know that A, it either needs to be dealt with or B, there's an education component that you, meet, you need because even the fear of hacking is enough to sort of slow the scalability of it and the general acceptance. Right. But I do think there's a, there's a ton of a ton of potential. It just, it's not going to probably happen tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I, I kind of laughed when you mentioned the flat screen TV analogy because <laughs> I, I was actually at um, a super great Canadian superstore yesterday and 
waiting in line to check out, there's this 55 inch LED flat screen TV just there, like, like you would buy batteries and gum. It's on the side of the line <laughs> and it's for like $300, which, you know, that would never happen 10 years ago, but there we, here we are. So I think you're right. I think, I think it is a matter of time. And on sort of on that note, what I think is being perhaps more readily adopted by some companies and some firms is artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know. There's a company, um, Blue Jay Legal, um, mm-hmm. in Toronto with with some pretty heavy hitters. <laughs> um, yep. Yep. Or, yeah, and I'm sure you're aware um, who who have adopted the sort of artificial intelligence component and combined it with law. Um, do you have any experience working in that realm? We don't currently offer. We don't, you know, extensively use AI at all. Mm-hmm. I do follow it fairly closely because I think that there's huge potential. I would yeah. say that that's um, absolutely uh, something if you, if you know what you're doing and you have the time um, and the money, certainly a great area to invest in. Yeah. But I, I know of Blue Jay Legal, I know sort of, you know, what they do. I think that there's, I think they're doing some great things over there. And I think there's a lot of potential in certain areas of law. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you agree with, you know, sort of the statement that, you know, computers can do things better than humans sometimes, let's leave it as general as that, yep. then you know that there's potential. I mean, anyone who's, you know, anyone who's human and has gone through school, we don't have perfect memories, we don't have perfect accuracy, and we're open to all sorts of bias, mm-hmm. bias in terms of our perspectives, but also in terms of the attention we pay certain details. Um, so if you are able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to get around some of those um, you know, some of these, these weaknesses that humans sometimes have when they're, they're doing certain tasks. Yeah. I think there's a ton of potential and it's being used quite widely right now. I mean, I think we're at tip of the iceberg. I mm-hmm. think we're going to see a lot more of it in the next five years. Right. And I, what I'm always curious about, and I hear differing answers to this, Lena, is what do you think the role of a lawyer is when, let's say, in 2030, blockchain and AI are at the forefront um, and we're, we're using it every day. I mean, I was watching something on the nature of things on CBC where they're using AI now to identify and track grizzly bears. <laughs> so, you know, things, it's going to be more and more prevalent. Um, and so what do you think the role of the lawyer is in the face of this technology? I, I've heard from some who get a little bit wary and sort of protectionist of the profession and say, um, we have to be careful and others are fully embracing the idea of using this because ultimately law is a service industry. You're serving clients. If you can do it more effectively and quicker and cheaper, why not? No, that, that's a great question, um, Anton. And I'm definitely not going to pretend that I have all the answers, but I no. can tell you yeah. sort of what, what I think and what my personal opinion is on it. Hmm. Um, I think as with, with any job, as with any profession, as with anything, you don't want to not change because, you know, you're worried about protecting the pr- profession or you're worried about protecting jobs. Things change over time. They do. It's always happened. It's going to continue to happen. And yeah. certain industries are going to be necessary at certain points in human civilization. And sometimes they aren't. And for example, you know, when we started using, um, you know, machine equipment on, 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 you know, for farmers, if the farmers were to say, look, I don't want to use a tractor because, what does that make me? What's my role if I'm going to use a tractor rather than my hands right. to do you know, A, B, and C? Great, we could have done that, but it, it's the same sort of example where we would not have progressed. I'm not saying that we have to progress, but mm. I'm saying if the option's there, you certainly don't want to limit people from doing that. Same thing with 
you know, cooking. If I don't use my knife to chop up my vegetables and I use a fruit, food processor instead, what's my role in the kitchen? Am I still a chef? <laughs> right. I think this, you know, the same thing can be said for a lawyer. Just because you aren't necessarily, um, you know, doing some of these tasks yourself doesn't mean that there isn't a place for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the real sort of philosophical question I think you're asking is, what is the place of a lawyer? What are we actually doing here? What is our job? And I don't know that I have the full answer, but I do think that it, it might mean something different from every, for everyone. Right. For me and for us at Access, a big part of it is I feel that my job is how do I create a system that efficiently provides legal services to Canadians that they can afford? Mm-hmm. That's it. And if that means that I'm the one sitting there writing wills 12 hours a day as quickly as I can because I can do it quickly and I've built a doc gen system, then that's what the answer is. And if it is that I, I built a system that allows me and you know our team of 20 lawyers to do it like that, then that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what gets us to the goal that we've defined. And it's, it's not going to be the same answer for everyone. That's the answer for me. But yeah. I think that it's important that there's a some sort of commonality in the profession towards, you know, what do we feel as a profession is our place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a great answer. And I think it's one that, you know, obviously it's open-ended. We, we have to wait and see. But like you said, and I think it's a great segue, um, your focus is access law. And if, if we think about access law, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about it, you know, what, what services do you offer? Where, where are you located in, in the country? And, and you mentioned you have a team of 20 lawyers. Yeah. Just, just a little bit of a brief intro to, to your law firm. No, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, we are uh, seven and a half, almost eight years old now. Um, we are currently, our head office is in Toronto. We have uh, offices across the GTA. We have one in Ottawa. Um, uh, we recently licensed in BC and Alberta, so we'll be opening there soon as well. Mm-hmm. We focus on, um, I'd say our biggest service areas right now are real estate and anything estates related. Right. Um, short of estate litigation, we don't, we don't touch litigation in any sense whatsoever. Um, but we're less service specific in terms of our objectives than we are uh, as I mentioned, just finding efficient ways to provide services that people need. So for us, it was very easy for us to build systems to be able to offer these services very efficiently. So a big part of Access Law is, I mean, we have a full development team, mm-hmm. is how do we use technology to make the process more transparent, make it more um, you know, quick, efficient, easy for people, and affordable. Mm-hmm. So we have... Um, yeah, we, we have a team of developers, we have a team of lawyers, we have a team of customer service people. And we, um, yeah, we, we offer estates, real estate services across the, the country, mainly Ontario still. And we really try to leverage technology to make sure that, you know, people can go, they can sign into their portals, they can check the status of their, uh, of their closings. We try to make it as user-friendly as possible. Basically, we're trying to catch up with a lot of the other industries out there who have already figured this out. Right, right. And that kind of lends to, um, on your website, you're stating that you believe that there's a better way to obtain legal services. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to there. Um, And you kind of, again, you alluded to how that works in practice, but I was wondering if you could sort of compare and contrast what you think the traditional way of practicing law or the traditional thought of how you're supposed to practice law versus what Access is looking to do with a team of developers and customer service representatives. 
Um, absolutely. And there's, there's nothing, this is absolutely not me sort of criticizing other ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. It's just the specific services that we've focused on and, and the mission statement that we're standing behind is one where we're really trying to push legal services that average Canadians need mm-hmm. and average Canadians need to buy a house. Oftentimes they need a will, they might need a divorce. So it's all those sort of average Canadian legal services that arise, you know, throughout the course of one's life from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think what differentiates us from a lot of the more traditional law firms is that in order to be able to do that, we had to make some decisions early on. And that was, okay, we have to take the traditional model and stand it on its head and say, Mm -hmm. instead of saying, we are a law firm, we are going to, you know, do A, B, and C, be open nine to five, Monday to Friday. We said, okay, if we were to actually design this to be a consumer centric model, what would that look like? And to us, that looked like, okay, people work a lot during the week. We better make sure that we're open seven days a week. People are busy during the day oftentimes. We better make sure that we're open in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Um, People are intimidated and put off when they don't know how much they have to pay. Like I know when I, (laughs) you know, bring my car to the dealership or the mechanic, there's always a little bit of anxiety (laughs) because you're like, oh God, what are they going to find? What are they going to try to talk me into? Like, I think I just changed my air filter two months ago and you know, they're going to come back with (laughs) you, Justin. I don't ever want to be, you know, in a place where I'm making our clients feel like that because it Mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's a really crappy way to feel. So the transparency was a big piece of that. So you know, that, that also means that we're not able to provide every type of legal service yet because we haven't figured it all out. I, mm-hmm. I have not figured out, our team has not figured out how to offer, you know, complex litigation services for flat, transparent fees. Right. I think it can be done. I do. But we haven't figured it out yet. And I don't know, maybe other people have. I know there are a lot of unbundling efforts that have real potential, but we haven't figured that out. Right. So we try really hard to focus on, you know, progress, not perfection. What are the areas of law that we can provide the way that we want to? And then let's perfect those. And then let's layer on a new service. So those are big things for us. Just it's, it's really, it has a lot to do with, you know, convenient times, convenient places. People really, most of our clients want to meet with us virtually. They don't want to have to come into the office. And this was even pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to have to come in if they don't have to. So um, we've tried to design a system just to answer your question that is really convenient. You can meet with us however and whenever you want to. So whether that's day, night, weekend, virtually in person, and you know what you're getting for the price you're paying. Right. That's it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I think I, and while you're explaining sort of how, how you built the, the, the firm, I almost kind of want to call it a company slash law firm slash, but I think what I'm getting at is as you're saying this, I'm sort of getting you know, it's making sense to me now, you know, your business background. And like you said, turning the traditional law firm model on its head, being open seven days a week, 20 years ago, generally speaking, was taboo. <laughs> like you, you don't, oh, do, yeah. you know, and yeah. so I, I wonder, do you think, do you see that too? Do you see that the business side of you, the business degree side and that experience has helped in rethinking or thinking outside of the box more than what perhaps somebody with a traditional legal legal education brought up in the traditional world might not even realize or think of? Um, I, I don't know. I would say that what it has done is it exposed me to a lot of different businesses. And I always find that's a great way to learn is to look at how other businesses, how, how other industries do it. 
So that was very helpful. Um, I think, you know, given a traditional legal background doesn't mean that you can't do the same thing. I think these days we're exposed to so many different business models, just, you know, online, you know, different advertisements. Um, you can have traditional legal background and still be super innovative. I see it, right. you know, all the time. People at, you know, more traditional firms are coming up with great ideas. And I think what's changed is there's suddenly this attitude where, it's not as frowned upon. It's not mm. quite as taboo where you can say, hey, look, I work for, you know, what some people might call a traditional law firm, but I've noticed my clients are visual. So I want to make sure that I help them by creating this, you know, this platform where they can visually do ABC. And I, I love that. Mm. So I don't really care if something is called a traditional law firm or not. I think whenever you try to put yourself in the shoes, I mean, I'm going to call them consumers. I know that really bothers some people rather than clients, but right. let's just do it for the sake of our conversation. Regardless of where you work or what your background is, if you can try to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer mm-hmm. slash client um, and, and have that as your starting point, we can come up with some really cool solutions that are not even that difficult um, quickly. And these are real problems. These are problems that are bankrupting people. These, these are problems that are causing real stress mm-hmm. for people in a country like Canada. And we actually have the ability to solve them. And they, they're not that difficult. Right. Well, I mean, and I guess I, the next question I have for you, um, and I guess we can just continue on this sort of train of thought is, with everything that you've done and everything that you've built, what continues to inspire you in your work um, with, with Access? That's another great question. I'd say there are a few things, Um, you know, on a personal level, I just really happen to enjoy the people I work with. I like them. I care about them. I think they're awesome, um, for lack of a better word. And, you know, on less of a personal note, I would say I just, you know what, I I like problem solving. I like it. I enjoy it. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I like seeing a problem and, you know, banging my head against the wall and trying to figure out how to solve it. Right. That's great. Um, well, Lena, I, I really appreciate your time. I think what I'd like to do is close with maybe one or two ideas from you about, and we, we've hit on this and I'll throw one out at you, but to sort of where you see the future of your business and by extension, the future of legal practices and services. So I'll throw one out. Um, okay. we, talk, we talked about blockchain and AI um, and the implementation or the paralleling of that and law and the practice of law. And you had mentioned you've, you've brought on developers, but we also prefaced the conversation by saying, we're not engineers here. You know, we're, we're not AI techs or blockchain techs. I was, I was thinking maybe there would be more of a, you know, law firms would bring people on like that in full-time roles. And I'm sure they already are, but continued um, sort of a, a real robust tech department, as it were, to keep those things running. Because when you think of tech, support within a within a bigger law firm again I'll, I'll adopt a 20th century approach you kind of think of them in the basement keeping the um you know the servers <laughs> up and running and fixing somebody's internet connection but i think i think they'll take on a more prominent role moving forward i i completely agree with you and you know this to an extent goes back to how how do we make that happen because mm-hmm. there are two different avenues you have the legal tech um, let's call it the non-licensee model where you have non-law firms who are um, doing a lot of these things right now. And look, I think that a lot of them are doing a really good job, mm-hmm. but you get various opinions on that. And okay, now here's a company that's completely um, you know, d- divorced from the oversight of the law society as it stands in Ontario still. 
Do we want that? And I'm not going to speak to whether we want that or not. It's not my place. What I would say is that a lot of these companies are doing really innovative things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flip side of that is you have a bunch of law firms that still in Ontario are not permitted to have non-licensee ownership. And I do believe that that's been a real stranglehold in terms of a lot of these firms being able to um, not only get the investment capital, but also bring in, you know, let's just call it fresh blood, but, you know, business partners who don't necessarily have that legal um, mindset or the same. We do not have enough diverse perspectives within a law firm. So you can hire, but you're asking then a group of lawyers to make the decision to use their cash flow to bring on a developer. And that's not always going to happen because you probably, I'm sure you know as well as I do, you're not going to see returns right away when you bring on a developer. It often yeah. takes years. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, are you going to be able to get that money back because you can only be lawyer owned? So there's no great IPO at the end of this. There's no great buyout by a private equity company because you still can't be bought out. So right. I know I'm kind of taking your question and I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but I think that these, these things are very important. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe that more developers will be brought on. I do believe that legal tech will start playing a much larger role than they are right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's a terrible idea. What I do think is that if the law society wants to continue to be able to have some sort of oversight and be part of this conversation, they should be moving more quickly to start engaging with these legal tech companies, not, you know, necessarily saying you've got to go, uh, you know, into this sandbox where you don't have a lot of incentive to do it, but, but really trying to think, how do I bring together law firms and legal tech companies to try to solve some of these problems? Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a huge um, a huge change. I think AI is going to change things completely. If there's one area that I would love to sort of see grow in our, our business would be taking what we've done so far and applying AI to a lot of them. I think it would be a game changer. Right. So um, we could have a full hour long conversation about this, Anton. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, no, no, I think, I, I mean, we'll end it here, Lena, but I, I mean, I, what's really, I, you know, I think we, we can both, we both get a bit jazzed when we start talking about the technology aspects of the practice mm-hmm. of law, thinking of a traditional model and sort of flipping it and playing with it to see how it can be perfected or, or bettered mm-hmm. in some way. So um, yeah, we may have that hour conversation, um, you know, sometime in 2021, catch up, <laughs> and see how access is doing. And then talk a little bit more about um, technology and where we think it's going in, in law. Sounds great. Sounds great. I look well, forward to it. Yeah. And, and thank you so much today, Lena. I, I've learned a lot. I, ho- I know, I hope the listeners did. I'm sure they did. And um, again, hopefully we can do this down the road. Sounds great. And that does it for episode 24 of our podcast, The Shot of Life. I'd like to thank Lena again for taking some time. I know how busy she is, particularly at this time of year, as as things start to wind down. Um, and being the head of head of a law firm cannot offer you much opportunity for freedom to do these kinds of things. So again, thank you so much to Lena. And it was really interesting for me to speak to her a little bit about how technology is is shaping and changing the practice of law. Back when my uncle was practicing law. Um, things were much different. You know, everything was written by hand. AI was just sort of a figment of everybody's imagination in sci-fi. But now it's really being utilized. And uh, it'll be really interesting to track where this is going. And I'm looking forward to hopefully speaking with Lena later in 2021 to get some updates and, and to find out how 
she's implementing new technologies into her practice. Hope you guys all enjoyed it. We'll talk again. Mm-hmm.